Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Okay, so um, we are going to talk about um, the interesting scenario um, in which agriculture and food production finds itself, which is um, a contributor, a major contributor to climate change, um, also a victim of climate change, and um, also a, a potential um, major solution towards um, meeting greenhouse gas emissions uh, reductions goals. Um, and uh, I'm going to speak pretty generally. Um, I, I imagine a lot of you m might know this stuff. Certainly Chris Clayton does. Um, <laughs> so um, to my right is, is uh, Ernie Shea. Ernie is the president of Solutions from the Land, and that is a... Um, it's a group based in Maryland that works with um, farm industry groups um, on finding um, solutions from the land, for lack of a better word. Uh, and, and they work with um, the uh, North, American Climate, North America Climate Smart Ag Alliance, uh, which includes all the major uh, ag and commodity groups in the US, I think, pretty much, right? A little broader, but yes. Okay, okay. Um, and to his right is Ben Lilliston. Ben is the uh, Director of Rural Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis. And he's been writing about ag policy for 20 years. Um, and to his right is Keith Postian, um, based here at CSU. Uh, Keith uh, has written extensively on um, soil carbon and uh, has developed models uh, for assessing soil carbon and greenhouse gas emissions from soils, um, including emissions that are reported by EPA to the UNFCCC. Um, he has also uh, taken a slice of a, a Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 for his work uh, on the IPCC, IPCC fourth assessment. Um, so I'm very, very happy to have uh, these three uh, people here to talk about um, these issues. So um, I'm wondering if we can start maybe just with Ernie. Can you just uh, maybe introduce yourself, talk a little bit about the work you do, and, um, and uh, because of uh, what Solutions from the Land does, maybe talk about solutions a little bit. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here, Georgina. Uh, and thanks for putting agriculture at such a prominent place on this year's program. There's a couple times that the, uh, the breakout sessions have been focusing on agriculture and particularly my interest, which is solutions that these landscapes can deliver. Um, I uh, support and run a relatively new 501c3 not-for-profit called Solutions from the Land. It's a farmer-led body that is dedicated to put farmers at the forefront of resolving global challenges. Their emphasis is on delivering solutions, not problems from the land, and we're helping across the country, nationally, and a little bit of work globally to start a different conversation. And for us, what we're really talking about is a new model or even definition of agriculture. When people think of agriculture, they think of the production of food, 
feed and fiber. Well, those are obviously are commodities that come off the land. But when we think about agriculture, we think about everything that you can harvest uh, off the land, and that includes clean water, sinking carbon, enhancing biodiversity, uh, delivering solutions to climate change. So we think about how can we manage these landscapes in a way that is addressing the sustainable development goals that the world has organized around, and that's, that's what we do. Um, for the climate work we're doing, uh, we found that there's a very constructive way to bring the agricultural community back into the conversation, and that's to talk about the three pillars of climate smart agriculture, sustainable intensification of production, adaption and resilience, because the sector is being impacted so significantly. And then the third is where most people go, which is greenhouse gas emission reductions and solutions. So uh, I'll talk more about that later, but that's the, the heart of how we have climate conversations with agriculture. And we're doing that uh, at the state level where we're bringing farmer leaders and close collaborating academic conservation environmental government partners together to problem solve and think about new pathways forward. So we have initiatives underway in Florida, North Carolina, Maryland, the Delmarva Peninsula actually, Ohio, uh, Iowa, uh, Missouri, and there's a growing body of interest across the country where farmer leaders are coming back into the conversation. We're also active at the North America level with the alliance that Georgina mentioned, where most of the mainline ag groups are assembling and having conversations about climate change and solutions they can deliver. We facilitate that dialogue. And the last uh, platform that we operate on is globally, where we are bringing agricultural leaders into the climate convention and helping them share their insight and recommendations uh, with the work streams that are involving uh, the agricultural sector. So that's a quick overview of um, who we are. Thanks. And actually, um, maybe from a logical flow standpoint, we can skip over Ben <laughs> and, and go, go to Keith. Um, and, and, and if you could just introduce yourself and your work, and then also uh, uh, describe, because many people may not know, um, how um, agriculture contributes to climate change, um, and, and what the, the um, uh, how soil carbon um, is sort of the low-hanging fruit, uh, according to the IPCC, in terms of uh, reducing global emissions. And then, um, and then maybe Ben can talk a little bit about uh, introduce himself and, and maybe talk a little bit about why that's such a challenge and why it hasn't happened to the extent maybe that it needs to. Mm. Okay, well, thanks, and sorry, Ben. I, you know, I wasn't wasn't <laughs> planned, but uh, anyway, yeah. My name is Keith Postian. I'm a professor here at Colorado State. Just and my office is, I don't know, a couple hundred meters away from here, uh, so it's nice to be on home turf. Um, my background is is really in uh, uh, ecosystem ecology, biogeochemistry. I uh, early on was really interested in in looking at. Uh, Soil organic matter dynamics, uh, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, along the way, I guess, when I was finishing my PhD was about the time that, uh, that, that really the, 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 the scientific push on, on, uh, on, on climate change was, was kind of ramping up. Um, and I 
and and here at also at Colorado State was a, a, was a place where a lot of fundamental work on on soil organic matter dynamics and modeling and quantifying organic matter dynamics was being done, and when it was kind of you know more generally realized by the broader community that hey, uh, you know greenhouse gas emissions isn't just what comes out of your car or out of the coal-fired power plant, but it also has to do with with natural systems and and including the soil, including you know the the, the carbon balance where. Uh, Soils have uh, the world soils have about three or four times as much uh, uh, carbon in the top meter or so than than is in the atmosphere for or in, in the vegetation even so it's uh, so a, a huge part of the of, of the carbon in our biotic systems is actually in the soil so it so it matters there um, and and my particular area of work is is kind of on you know, again, quantifying, modeling, trying to to predict and quantify uh, the changes in in not only carbon but also other soil uh, greenhouse gases, specifically methane and, and nitrous oxide. How our management systems are are affecting those emissions, and then how can we modify our emissions, or our, sorry, our practices to reduce those emissions, and even to uh, you know to to uh, uh, take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and and put it into to soil humus to soil organic matter, and and that's a uh, you know that that's a positive thing from the climate standpoint and a positive thing from soil health, uh, and just uh, what Georgina was asking about just to kind of a a quick grounding in uh, in the uh, um, you know the significance of 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 soils is is that. Um, you know, historically, we've lost somewhere on the order of, of 500 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalents from the conversion of native ecosystems into agricultural systems today. So that's a, uh, you know, if we can change our land use systems to kind of reverse that trend, go back towards the higher organic matter that we had under native systems, probably can't go all the way, but can we gain back some of those 500 billion tons that have been lost over the last 10,000 years, that's a big carbon dioxide drawdown potential. But in order to do that, we're going to have to uh, change our, 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 our management of, of agricultural lands and, and, you know, and, and, and other managed lands. Uh, the part where I think the science really comes in is, is on the uh, is maybe on the quantification side because we it's not easy to to just kind of measure with a gizmo what the greenhouse gas emissions and how they're changing uh, because these are non-point source right they're occurring across you know millions of of square kilometers they're variable in space and time and so it's a challenge to 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 be able to quantify those things and. I guess the you know the whole idea if you can't measure it you can't manage it right Peter Drucker or somebody like that said once upon a time so in order for us to have effective policies that um, that to try to reduce emissions try to sequester carbon we have to be able to 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 quantify those changes sufficiently well 
that it can help drive policy. It can give confidence that we're going in the right direction. And so I think that's one of the big challenges scientifically is to develop those kind of quantification systems that can guide policy and that can lead to the kind of things that Ernie was talking about, you know, incentivizing farmers to, uh, and ranchers to improve their management and, and then to, to be rewarded by society for those improvements. And that's, you know, that's kind of the core of what I'm, I'm working on. Great. Uh, yes, so my name is Ben Lilliston. I work at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. We are in Minnesota. Uh, we've been around for 30 years, and we were formed during the farm crisis at that time when people were trying to understand what are the, what are the policy reasons why this is happening on the ground, why are we seeing massive farm foreclosures. Um, and we looked a lot at trade policy at that time. We have partly an international board, so we... Uh, partner a lot with similar types of organizations around the world that are also looking at these kinds of questions. What is the policy framework? How is it affecting farmers on the ground? And for us, we do have a perspective. Uh, we are looking at policies through a lens of are they benefiting family farmers? Are they benefiting rural communities, um, the environment? And in now, uh, probably over the last 10 years, much more intensely the climate. Um, producing enough healthy food for people. Um, so we look at policies like, and in, in the case of climate, probably uh, most recently, you know, the Farm Bill just recently passed. What, uh, how does that, what is, if you look at that from a climate lens, how does that look? Um, trade deals and trade agreements. So we have a new NAFTA that just is slowly working its way through Congress. What are the climate impacts of that? Um, and, and we've looked at other trade deals as well. Um, we look at a lot of state policy action because that's where you're seeing a lot of energy um, and actually things moving forward on the climate front. How is that impacting agriculture? Where's agriculture falling within those state climate policy uh, movement? Um, and then we also look a lot at um, Climate policy itself, uh, agriculture has often been sort of a side issue in a lot of climate policy discussions, and Ernie was referencing the, the UNFCCC, where agriculture um, and traditionally, and I, I think that's changing a little bit, but has been sort of a side question or issue or, or viewed as an offset rather than something that maybe needs to be dealt with more directly. So we do analysis around that, too. Um, the one, I think, uh, one point that I wanted to make just in starting this discussion, uh, just wanted to raise the challenges right now in the farm economy, uh, which I think we view as, as a real barrier to making change. Um, there's a major farm crisis going on. We're talking about six years right now straight of pretty low prices, often below cost of production prices. I think the average uh, income of farmer in the last year was somewhere around a negative $1,200. So they're losing money, trying to stay on the farm, trying to keep going. Major dairy crisis taking place right now, particularly for mid and small sized dairies in the Midwest. We're losing them um, very quickly. Um, there's a lot of stress out there. Suicide hotlines are 
being promoted very heavily by a lot of different farm groups to try to deal with that. Um, and this is, you know, from our perspective, uh, 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 at least somewhat, there are many factors involved, but one of the factors is overproduction. We have a system just designed to keep producing more and more and more, and I think that's linked to climate change. Um, but it's, it's backed by policy. We have a farm bill um, that is designed to produce more and more and more. We have trade agreements that fit together with our farm policy that also are driving this overproduction. We must get those foreign markets. Um, and we also have a regulatory system that treats agriculture very differently than other sectors um, that promotes a certain type of agriculture that is producing more and more. So, um, you know, one point I would make is I think it really to change, to get a, an effective and I think urgent response to climate change for farmers, we need to look at that policy framework. Um, and it's not just agriculture policy and think about how we can um, <coughs> make reforms that encourage, incentivize farmers to make changes um, and really create a more supportive uh, policy framework for that to happen. So I'll stop there. Um, I think it was last week, or in the last couple of weeks anyway, that Ag Secretary um, uh, Sonny Perdue um, reiterated a, a comment um, or a sentiment that's been um, uh, uttered in, in ag circles for a long time, 50, 60 years, and this is the get, out, get bigger, get out mantra. Um, can you guys discuss... Um, why that matters from a climate standpoint and why the family farm, the mid-sized farm, um, why, why it's important for those kinds of farms to, um, to thrive. Um, and, 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 you know, I think it's Warren and Sanders. They both have um, proposals in their um, ag and rural policy platforms that address consolidation. Um, so that's uh, the American farm is getting bigger. Why does that matter from a climate standpoint? Do you think it does matter from a climate standpoint? I'll let each of you take that. So I think it's a natural part of uh, economic evolution where uh, improvements in efficiency oftentimes result in businesses' operations getting larger. But in the case of agriculture, I think what we continue to work on is the reality that climate change is going to affect any type of farming operation, whether you're big, whether you're small, whether you're organic, whether you're conventional, whether you're industrial, whether you're field to market. And everybody fits a unique niche and provides valuable services. So we don't try to look towards one sector, bigger is better, is the solution platform. There's certainly examples of success and efficiency where larger operations have learned how to manage purchase inputs perhaps more efficiently than a smaller operator. But smaller operators tend to be more diversified and have more flexibility, so they learn from each other. So I don't spend a lot of time worrying about one versus the other. We try to bring them all together. And the other thing that we focus in on is the fact that we have to be cognizant of the fact that these landscapes, these farming operations, were not created to solve the climate crisis. They were created to support all types of needs that we have as humans, including the most fundamental need to eat. So that's why this conversation about land management and addressing the climate challenge has got to be 
held in conjunction with the other obvious needs, where we're gliding towards a global planet population of 10 billion people by mid-century. How do we feed that population with the type of diet that people are going to expect without destroying the earth? So how can we sustainably intensify production and do it in a way that simultaneously delivers ecosystem services that help the climate? This is a complex conversation. And what is motivating producers, whether you're very large or very small, is the fact that they're feeling the impacts of these changing conditions. It's a very politically charged topic. We oftentimes don't talk about climate change. We talk about crazy weather. We talk about disruptions in production systems. We oftentimes just listen to them tell their stories of how unpredictable growing conditions are compromising their ability to be economically viable. So there's a big conversation about how do we adapt? How do we farm in the 21st century in a way that is delivering on the need to feed 10 billion people in a sustainable way, in a way that filters and stores water, in a way that enhances biodiversity, in a way that delivers climate solutions? And why can't we construct a business model where these farming operations, whatever size, whatever scale, can be valued and compensated? So what we're really talking about is the monetization of ecosystem services that these operations are going to be scaling up and delivering more and more of. And the exciting part is there is a robust conversation happening, uh, separate from the policy wonks and the worlds that sometimes we get pulled into. When you talk to producers at the grassroots level, their number one interest is how do I remain economically viable? How do I remain relevant? And in this tough time that Ben just talked about, where we're in year going into year seven of negative net farm income, how do you do that? How, how, do, you, how do you deliver all of these outcomes that they want and we want? And I think the key is you do it by listening and working and helping, not by beating them up. Uh, okay, I'll jump in. Uh, yeah, that last point about be feeling beat up, I know that a lot in the farm community feel that way. Um, I think a couple key points building off what Ernie just said, you know, we do feel like adaptation is is an absolute key way to start a conversation in the ag community, and it is something that they all have in common, every size, every type of production. And the exciting, I think, opportunity there is a lot of the things that you would do to increase your resilience against the effects of climate also can reduce emissions and soil health is kind of you know uh, a great example of that and you're seeing the tremendous movement right now around soil health and how do we build soil health how do we measure that among all sizes of farms and um, so that's an exciting opportunity I think that um, going back to the question that was a very uh, kind of lightning rod <laughs> uh, comment made by Sonny Purdue, and it and you're right, it goes back decades, and it's a it's a uh, sensitive topic in the ag community because you are seeing that consolidation in land ownership. Many farmers uh, have been pushed out uh, through policy, and it's been sort of a stated policy in the U.S. that we need fewer farmers. Um, 
going back to Earl Butts and Nixon um, Ag Secretary. And so it's it it is a it's a kind of a I think a question. What does it mean for climate? Is kind of a, a I would say kind of a narrow question to ask. What does it mean for our rural communities? What does it mean for our food system? If we want fewer and fewer landowners controlling that system, and that's where we're going. That's what's happening if we don't shift things. Um, we had a University of Minnesota ag economist testify before the state legislature just this last year saying basically what we really need is 11 dairies in the state, really big dairies, that that's the most efficient system that we could have. And what does that mean from a climate standpoint? Dairies are, are one of the targets for emissions. Um, and, it's, and they're particularly talking about these large dairies producing large amounts of manure. Um, so that could have an impact, but it also has, you know, I guess I would, we think about it a little bit broader is, you know, um, these rural, rural communities are the ones most closely tied to natural, natural resource-based economies. They're the ones managing the land. I think uh, our response to climate change will be much stronger if they are engaged in that climate policy and part of it, um, and in some cases leading it. Um, um, and I think the idea of shrinking down that population, which we've seen fairly steadily, um, fewer and fewer people there, fewer and fewer locally owned businesses. So what you have is global corporations basically extracting a lot of resources out of those rural areas. There's less accountability. Those, uh, a global corporation is not accountable to the land in a way that someone lives there is. And uh, so I, I would make the argument that we need farmers on the land. We need more farmers on the land. We need strong rural communities as part of a climate solution. Um, and so thinking about, you know, that's, that's my take on that. So... I don't, I don't have a lot to add. I'm not a policy person. But um, I think, you know, several of the points that the two, you know, previous speakers have, have made, I, 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 you know, resonate. I think it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge. I, from, from my standpoint, I guess what I, I, I think there's a, you know, the, where, where the science comes in is I think we, you know, we have a pretty good understanding now of the kind of ecological principles, if you will, that, that need to underpin, you know, sustainable agriculture. So I think there, you know, we know where we should be going to, and that's where science can inform. The other area that science can inform, if we talk about trying to monetize ecosystem services, you know, the kind of work that, that my group does is really on the prediction and quantification side of things that, you know, again, provide support for that vision if, you know, if we're going to have ecologically based land management systems and the full range of services that those provide to society are going to be something that the farmer or the rancher is going to share in, you know, is going to be incentivized to provide, then, you know, then the science support needs to be there. I, I do, you know, the, the last thing that... Uh, you know that Bob said is 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 kind of interesting is about the land ownership and whether you have absentee ownership versus you know owner operators. That's 
you know, that's been an issue that we've kind of dealt with in just in the practicality of, of working with farmers and, uh, and, and, you know, this is a, maybe a little bit of a narrow focus, but it just in terms of, of for farmers to be able to effectively participate in, in sort of quantifying their outcomes and, and, and looking at where changes in their management might lead them in terms of the e ecological outputs, if you will, there is a real difference between, you know, someone that is there present living on the land that understands it and they can engage, you know, with with uh, extension agents and scientists and use the kind of tools that we're producing and that as opposed to if if the land is being managed by, you know, someone who maybe is, or is owned by and controlled by, you know, someone in another country, it for sure it makes it more difficult to to kind of develop the, you know, I don't know, the network of the partnerships that need to go into, you know, to really, you know, kind of policies and management of the land that, that will achieve, you know, those kind of outcomes. So I think it does raise, a, uh, you know, potential impediments, I, I guess I would say, if you have too much, you know, absentee ownership. Great. Thanks for that. Um, We've talked a little bit about the farm crisis, and um, given the um, gi given the dire financial situation that most American farmers are in right now, um, and given these targets set out in proposals by by the, uh, the Democratic candidates, for example, um, I think a couple of them say. Um, we want to achieve, including Biden, uh, we want to achieve um, carbon neutral neutrality in agriculture. How do you how do you get there? Um, I, I guess we can start with Ernie, but um, those seem to be two things at odds right now. And given the urgency, um, we need everybody, you know, in t to get to our, uh, you know, greenhouse gas reduction goals. We need to be pulling on all oars in transportation, energy, and agriculture. But um, how do you do that when one of those um, uh, industries is in, in, in real trouble? So. so I think that's a great example of the what and the how question that we struggle with every day. So, so what is it that we could do to get to a carbon neutral uh, outcome? Uh, and I think there is some low-hanging fruit, uh, and we've talked about them already. One is soil carbon sequestration. That's a win-win for both the producer that can improve the health of their soil, the productivity, the water storage, the reduced need for inputs. There's just a lot of work that can be done and is being done around uh, soil health, soil carbon sequestration that can deliver significant, not all, but significant uh, climate solutions if we're talking about that particular lens. Uh, there's another area that we can focus on, which is um, uh, replacements for fossil fuels. So well-managed agricultural systems that can produce biomass that can be converted into bioenergy is another solution pathway that we've been developing and continuously improving upon. Today, the greenhouse gas emissions of corn ethanol are 43% on average less than petroleum gasoline. There is a benefit in there, particularly as a bridge fuel as we segue, transform mobility from horses to internal combustion engines to 
whatever's going to come next. Uh, so there's a way that these agricultural landscapes can contribute, and there's a double benefit there because not only can they produce a feedstock that is much less carbon intensive, but with proper conservation and production practices, they can simultaneously sink carbon in the ground. So it, it's a twofer. Um, a third area of, of low-hanging fruit opportunity, I think, for us is to deploy and scale precision agricultural uh, practices that will allow for the much more uh, precise application of purchased inputs like nitrogen fertilizer uh, that, if not properly used, can contribute significant greenhouse gas emissions. So there's an economic incentive to apply less because the economy is struggling so much. So those are, those are three. They're in, in the livestock area. The ability now with the emerging technology to capture methane emissions and convert those emissions into renewable natural gas and provide them into the marketplace as a replacement for um, uh, natural gas is a near-term opportunity. Maybe not at the scope and scale of others, but these livestock operations can contribute as well. And in terms of the uh, grazing operations, uh, grass-fed beef, livestock are, are part of a solution package to sustainably manage grasslands because they consume the grasses that grow and through photosynthesis sink carbon. So none of these are perfect. These are all tools in a toolbox that can be deployed. And I think the key is developing the right enabling policies, market mechanisms, research-supported initiatives, uh, uh, measuring and accounting systems that will allow them to be deployed at scale, assessed, improved continuously as we go forward. I want to talk about the livestock thing um, maybe after we sweep through. Ben, do you want to get at the carbon neutrality? Um, what stands in the way, really, from a policy standpoint? Um, and, and, you know, is there a, you know, a single thing that we can get to? Like Rattan Law, soil, soil scientist at Ohio State, he always says um, we need to pay farmers. You know, um, how does that happen right now? Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll say a, a few things. I think um, <laughs> first is we do have some very good programs in the Farm Bill, conservation-oriented programs that uh, can really help in this regard. And from our perspective, they're they're underfunded. Um, uh, farmers always over sort of apply for these, and, and so many farmers get turned away. Um, they're not paying them enough. They certainly can be reformed, too, and made better. But those programs are very good about doing a lot of things that Ernie's talking about, um, and that is around paying farmers. That's a public form of paying farmers for um, these types of services. Um, so some of that is around taking land out of production that probably shouldn't be in production, marginal land. Some of it can help farmers um, do more sustainable management grazing, putting perennials on the uh, out there, um, so a variety of different soil health practices. So one thing would be, I think we've got to really amp up um, the contribution of those conservation programs and thinking about how they integrate with the other Farm Bill programs. I mean, really, they're kind of separate. They're not part of the commodity programs, and I think um, going forward, if we're going to try to make those major changes, we need to think about how, to, how those two pieces fit together for a farmer. Um, 
talking a little bit earlier about the crop insurance programs. They could do a lot more. The, right now, they set up a lot, a lot for farming, as we're talking about, is about managing risk. And right now, this current programs manage a lot of risk for farmers to plant the way they are planting, to, to do what they're doing, growing a lot of commodity crops. And um, thinking about how to restructure some of those uh, crop insurance <coughs> programs in ways that incentivize uh, more climate resilience and, and climate mitigation is another um, another thing to look at. Farmland protection. Um, we shouldn't be losing farmland right now. We should be thinking about how to protect that and, and stop that from happening. Um, think about infrastructure would be another thing for some of these new markets. Um, you know, you look at the growth of the organic market. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that organic uh, has brings a lot of different climate benefits. Sustainable livestock grazing, one of the big barriers of growth there is policy. It's a, it's a lot around imports, but it's also around setting up the infrastructure for that market to take off. Um, so thinking about how do we uh, do public investments around infrastructure for markets that will pay farmers in the marketplace um, for, and, and where there's a lot of consumer demand. I mean, if you look at consumer demand, they're, they're kind of reaching out for these kind of markets. So those are a few things. going to the policy yeah, stuff, that's sorry. Right. No, it's okay. No, it's fine. So these guys are really comprehensive, and I don't have anything to add there necessarily on the policy imperatives. I would say one thing that, and I, you know, want to be, is maybe a little bit new, nuanced, but uh, when we talk about carbon neutrality, there's also a, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a time element there. So I think there's general, uh, in, in terms of where agriculture can go, you know, long term, there's definitely a, a sense that if we can provide the right kind of incentives, the practices are out there, there could be a, uh, a significant amount of carbon sequestration that would, would help, uh, you know, in, in a material way, uh, the climate issue. We can also, uh, you know, in terms of our greenhouse gas uh, 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 emissions and, and greenhouse gas balance, uh, agriculture, though, also produces these these non-CO2 greenhouse gases, nitrous oxide and methane, are are, are the two that that uh, uh, that matter. Uh, and here's a uh, it's a little bit of a conundrum, and maybe it's not something we have to worry about right now. But in fact, I would say that probably food production systems long term may not be ever really carbon neutral in the true sense. And that is that there's going to be a, as long as we're adding more reactive nitrogen in order to produce enough food to feed the 10 billion people, as long as we have, uh, you know, a livestock sector or as long as we grow rice and, and emit methane, there's a certain greenhouse gas cost of doing business long-term in agriculture. So I'm not sure that we ever re achieve full carbon neutrality for the foreseeable future, but we can definitely, maybe we can have carbon neutrality in the short term as we rebuild carbon stocks. Eventually those attenuate and we, and we can't, you know, you can't increase soil carbon stocks indefinitely, but you can, you know, take back some of that loss. And then the issue will be long term, how do we then balance off 
some methane emissions, some nitrous oxide emissions that are going to be sort of the cost of doing business of, of food production systems. I think probably if that's in, you know, 2100 and, and we're down to, you know, a couple of petagrams of CO2 equivalent emissions, you know, probably we can offset those with some kind of carbon dioxide removal. But the interesting issue is, is you know, that in the end, when we're completely fossil-free, we've got, you know, electric stuff and, and wind and solar geothermal, the, the greenhouse gases that humans produce that remain are probably going to actually be entirely almost from agriculture. But probably if we get to that point, we'll be able to deal with them. But it's just a, a maybe an interesting scientific nuance that hopefully will not be lost on, on folks. But. Um, yeah, we, I think the UN says we'll need to produce 70% more food um, within, I think by 2050, I think is the number for feeding 9.7 billion people. Um, there have been a, a, a number of reports over the last year, um, two from the um, IPCC, another from the IPBS, um, and uh, to varying degrees they call for a global overhaul in the way that we eat and the way that we farm. Um, this is a big question, obviously, but um, what does that mean for American agriculture? How, how, when, when we're calling for global transformation, what does that mean for American farmers? So this is uh, an example where the climate conversation morphs into something much bigger, and it really goes to the heart of what we keep <laughs> on our radar screen, which is sustainable development goals. How are we going to provide a diet, a food system that provides the diet, the nutrition, that provides healthy outcomes for people around the world? And there's a robust debate taking place. And what I've observed as I work globally is that it's exploding in the climate house with new stakeholders arriving, arguing that dietary reform, health reform, particularly giving up eating meat is somehow the magic wand that gets us all to a better place. And my response is that's a bunch of bunk. Uh, we need everybody's input, dietitians, nutritionists, farmers, uh, health professionals to think through and come up with what is the right uh, uh, balanced approach. And if we want to talk about diets, uh, it, depending upon what part of the world you're in, there's a different need for different uh, nu nutrient inputs. And uh, for many parts of the world, it's a luxury even to be able to consume an animal uh, uh, food product. Uh, they don't have access to meat. And they're um, deprived of important proteins and nutritional elements that, that we take for granted because we probably ate too much of it. So the question of what about here in the United States, I think that we need to listen to our dietary partners and ensure that the diets we're eating are balanced. And if that means throttling back in the amount of meat that's eaten, we should pay attention to that. But that doesn't mean throw animals under the bus uh, campaign against livestock and think that somehow that's going to produce a climate benefit because it's just way too oversimplistic. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, animals in a well-managed agricultural system are a critical component of a climate delivery system. 
uh, our Western landscapes, where if there's not an economically viable reason for a person to be on a couple of thousand acres in Western Colorado, grazing sheep or cattle to make a living, to generate an economic return, to manage the land, to produce the outcomes we want, whether that's aesthetic, whether it's carbon, whether it's water quality, whether it's wildlife, somebody has to responsible, be responsible for managing that land. And without an economic return, they have nothing to work with. So for them, livestock, uh, the raising of cattle, sheep, whatever it is, is a means to, to an end. So the question is not should we or shouldn't we raise uh, animals. It's how can we do it in the most productive way for the economic viability of the operation and the environmental outcomes. It's, 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 a, it's a complicated conversation. And it gets further complicated when you look at grass-fed systems, confined feeding operations, and, and their roles in providing uh, both solutions and problems. Yeah, we have, we're or? getting to the Q&A time here, so um, should we start, did you guys just want to add very quickly and then we'll go to Q&A, or? Um? Um, well, yeah, I would just add two points, uh, maybe quickly, uh, very much agree with Ernie that it's, uh, that, that debate has gotten, some, you know, oversimplified, eat meat, don't eat meat, dairy as well. And, and from our perspective, um, it is about how that animal or, or dairy is produced and um, that you do see evidence that these large concentrated operations uh, producing massive amounts of manure, more manure than they can, you know, use as fertilizer in surrounding farmland is the source, you know, those are a problem from an emission standpoint. And uh, so thinking about how do we transition or, or support other forms of, of raising animals and dairy for us is part of that conversation. I think the simplistic eat meat or don't eat meat is not necessarily helpful in kind of trying to dig into those kinds of questions. And, and admittedly, um, I, I'd be interested in, in hearing what Keith thinks, but the science on, on all that stuff is still evolving and developing. Just really quickly, I, I'm, you know, it's, it's a little bit out of my, my field, but certainly I think there's been some papers recently that if you, you know, if you look at sort of global food demands, where we're going, you look at available land areas, uh, you know, I think the, yeah, sustainable intensification is, you know, is, is a, you know, is a pretty well-founded concept, but at some point, dietary adjustments maybe are are a part of the picture and and I but I agree with Ernie it's uh, you know it's it's a nuanced and kind of a difficult discussion because there are certain kind of ecosystems you know if you're talking about grasslands if you don't have grazing animals present on your grassland then you don't really have a grassland anymore it doesn't function ecologically but that being said I think if you look at the you know the global footprint of you know, of our agricultural systems. And then if we imagine we have to improve, you know, by 70%, I think a, a, a piece of, you know, the diet adjustment or diet modification things, you know, maybe eating less meat here, eating more meat somewhere else. Now there's the impossible Whopper, which I got to go out and try. I don't know. It may be that all this stuff is going to, 
you know, that, that, that the industry and technology is, is going to, you know, is going to more quickly than we think solve some of these kind of things. You know, I don't know. But I think those are certainly, and I would agree with Ernie, I think that it's a big discussion that there needs to be a big tent. You've got to have, you know, all the folks involved and there aren't simple kind of solutions, one-off, stop doing this, or, you know, just sequester Total carbon solves global warming. No, that's not happening. You know, stop eating meat. That'll solve everything. No, that's not true either. You know, it's it's a much more complex, nuanced discussion that we need to have. Thanks. Um, okay, we'll start to take questions. Um, they should be from SEJ members or journalists. Um, and, um, and if you could identify yourself, um, and I'll repeat the question. Um, I think you had your hand up long ago. <laughs> Jane Kay, I'm an independent environmental lawyer. My question is for Dr. Christina. Um, can you recommend any published studies that assess carbon sequestration related to compost and coffee? Mm. I'm going to repeat the question. Yeah, so are there... Uh, sorry, it's, okay. uh, the question is, um, can you recommend anything, um, any uh, studies um, that look at carbon sequestration as it relates to compost, I think? And cover cropping. And cover cropping. And cover crops, yeah. Um, yeah, well, cover crops, that's that's an easy one. There's, there's a lot of work going on there, and then I think now there's there's been about three or four big uh, meta-analyses, you know, almost summaries of, of studies that are out there. I have a student who's, you know, who's working on hopefully being able to publish another meta-analysis on top of the ones, but it pretty soon is, gee, you know, is somebody going to publish yet another one? There's a lot of information that's coming out on cover crops now, so I'd be happy if you want to talk to me afterwards. I can even, you know, send you those. Uh, compost is, you know, there's a lot of interest in compost. The you know, probably the, the work that's most well-known is, is Wendy Silver's group out of University of California, Berkeley, a few years ago, has done uh, work on, on compost additions to rangeland, uh, and those papers have been pretty widely cited. Uh, there's, you know, there, there are others in the literature. It's, you know, compost is tricky from the standpoint of, of, the, of, of understanding its, its net climate impacts because... The compost is organic matter that's coming from somewhere else. So, of course, if you add organic matter to soil, it increases the soil carbon, but that doesn't that's not the same as, you know, in situ carbon dioxide uptake. So you really, the, the tricky thing about looking at compost as a, as a climate mitigation is you have to look at the full, uh, you know, the full life cycle that includes then, well, what happened, you know, where did the compost come from? Was it coming from green waste that went into a landfill? And if it went into the landfill, was that causing emissions? And so if you create compost, do you avoid some of those emissions? It's, it'd be, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a tricky thing to quantify. Uh, I guess one final, there's a recent paper that came out also on, on compost additions to, to, to rangelands. And, and there it's interesting because they were l looking at... Uh, issues with invasive species like cheatgrass or, or weeds or something like that where, you know, if you're, if you're adding nutrients and organic matter to systems that maybe aren't, um, you know, aren't, aren't necessarily well attuned to those kind of external 
inputs, then you, you make changes to the you know, nutrient status. Maybe you increase the chance of, of uh, invasive species. So it's a pretty, you know, again, it's unfortunately, it's nuanced and you got to look at, at, at a whole bunch of different factors. And, and uh, so it's, it's not easy answers, but there's, there's, you know, there is quite a bit of good research that's ongoing. Methane capture from cows is a possible energy way to reduce emissions, and biofuels is a possible way to have kind of a neutral sort of energy uh, emissions. One of the things that the wind industry often says is, oh, we can help farmers cushion their economic impacts when there's a bad year. I guess my question is, how much validity is there to that? Is that in fact, a correct assumption? Could that help drive down emissions further? I guess how, how much is that hype and how much is it real? Um, so the question is um, around methane reduction and biofuels. Well, methane reduction and biofuels were examples. The question is to what extent, if any, does wind energy help farmers economically while also perhaps reducing emissions? Okay. So where does wind energy play into the um, emissions reduction scenario on the farm? Right. I'm sure Ben can add a lot to this, but for us, it's one of the important tools in the toolbox. So renewable energy uh, is a much better source of energy than fossil fuel energy. So to the extent we can substitute renewables for fossils, we're, we're winning. If we can find a way to deploy these renewables, whether it's wind, solar, geothermal, uh, bioenergy, in rural communities, you further enable the economic viability of those rural communities to function and to be sustainable over time. So we think of this is anything, if you're a farmer, you think about anything that shines down on the land, blows across the land, flows across the land, grows up from the land. They're in the position with the right enabling policies and markets to harness all of those solutions. So wind uh, is a great example of something that can be deployed on agricultural landscapes. How you do it gets tricky, and that's maybe where Ben wants to comment. Yeah, that's interesting you asked that. Um, we um, just have done uh, a, a dialogue, and uh, so we work with the Jefferson Center, who's also here, and I think did a session yesterday um, in uh, southwest Minnesota <laughs> in a county that is very targeted for wind energy um, because they fit within the flow of the wind and the transmission lines. They're sort of the, the perfect uh, location. And, you know, it raised a lot of these interesting questions about the opportunity in this farm economy for farmers. I think it's very real, and um, that came out there and just agree very much with what Ernie was saying. Um, but also in a lot of rural areas, um, there's concerns and a little bit of pushback around the big wing developments, which is, I think, different than you're just producing for your own farm purposes. Um, and those kinds of questions are, uh, who's really getting the benefits? Is our community benefiting? Um, and then also push back around neighbors who 
feel like the character of their community is sort of being lost, and they may not be getting the benefits from it. So that's an important discussion um, that is taking place in a lot of rural areas about how do we, and, and I think there are solutions to that, but you, you really need public engagement to do it. You need, we need uh, communities to step up, and, and sometimes it's county commissioners stepping up and state level people stepping up and saying, okay, how can we do this where we get a win, sort of wind and a win-win uh, <laughs> thing here so that everyone, everyone benefits. But it's a, uh, I think it's an opportunity if done right and, and done with a lot of um, input from people who are living in that community. Um, back there, you had your hand up quite a, yeah, that's you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> My name's Danielle Kading. I'm with Wisconsin Public Radio. I was just wondering, what are some of the most significant policies that you see in place right now with agriculture that are prohibiting uh, the ability of the industry or the willingness of the industry to address some of these climate change impacts that we're seeing? Okay, so the question was, um, what are some of the policy obstacles um, to farmers um, adopting some of these climate-friendly practices on-farm? Did I get that right, more or less? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's no shortage. Uh, let's start there. there there's, there's a lot of um, disharmony among policies that have been developed over decades, over a century, to change the way land is managed. So there's incentives and disincentives at the same time. So whether you're gonna start at that level and go down to something like the farm bill, uh, there, there's, we could spend the whole day on enabling policies and disconnects and working across purposes. Uh, but one area where there's a global conversation occurring, uh, and I think we'll have it here in the United States, is the role of production incentives uh, to achieve food security outcomes and is that the best way to incentivize what happens on the land as opposed to an alternative approach of using government subsidies support the delivery of ecosystem services? So I don't remember the exact figure, but I think it's in the range of $500 billion is used by governments around the world to subsidize the production of commodity crops to meet global needs. This didn't happen because somebody decided suddenly to put subsidy programs in place. There's lots of reasons why governments invest. So there's a 21st century uh, conversation occurring around, is that the best use of those subsidies going forward? And one of the questions is, if we've redirected those payments, if there was a way to do it equitably around the world, so US producers were not put at an economic disadvantage from producers in other parts of the world, which is a real risk, uh, if everybody switched to a different model of using subsidies to pay for ecosystem services, as an example, uh, that would be transformational. So that's a big question, uh, and it requires a lot of negotiation at the multilateral, at the global level, before we would commit as a country, I'm sure, just to abandon our traditional subsidy programs and switch everything over to an ecosystem service payment system. From the International Food Policy and Research um, Institute, of that 500 billion in subsidies globally, um, the the it, the percentage I forget what it is off the top of my head, but it's, it's infinitesimal infinitesimally small that, that that's linked to any kind of environmental outcome. 
So, um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, um, I cut in. <laughs> Go ahead, Ben. Um, well, I'll just say quickly. You know, just important to keep in mind this last farm bill was written. You know, by two ag committee chairs who were essentially climate deniers or, or climate skeptics to be charitable. So it's it's difficult, you know, that gives you an idea of, of climate was not at the top of their concerns as they're putting together these programs, even though, you know, many of the programs are really good and, and can bring climate benefits. So, um, uh, uh, you know, what's a barrier, you know, I said before, greater investments in conservation programs and making those more accessible and higher payments. So kind of building up what you're saying, I think crop insurance reform and, and those insurance and commodity program reforms that focus on on that is important. Um, you know, Wisconsin, it, uh, uh, with the dairy crisis, the, the interesting thing about the dairy crisis is that as we are in the midst of losing many, many farms, um, you're not seeing a decrease in production, right? Because they're still building some of these mega dairy farms. And, and that is where the economics get all get kind of weird and and that's something that i think we got got to look at is and I, one of my original comments around this overproduction challenge that we have um we're producing and there's a reason why we're producing so much it's because there are global players that really benefit from that system um and at some point we're going to have to kind of take that on uh, directly, you mentioned some of the proposals from some of the Democratic candidates, you know, talking about supply management systems in dairy. That is something that there is a movement among dairy farmers to, to talk about um, as, a, as a possible way to address this. You know, that's a, that's a, a controversial issue in ag circles, but um, when you have a farm economy that seems to be broken, um, it has the potential to address both the price issue as well as uh, bring some real climate benefits. So that's why it's getting a little bit more attention and, and discussion. Um, so the question was, um, can you each address um, these proposals that, um, that, that, or recommendations to eat less meat and, and how you think they're oversimplified? Yeah, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take over for Ernie just really quickly. Um, so I would only say one, one aspect. So in general, you know, as you eat higher up the food chain, there's more kind of uh, uh, embodied, uh, you're, you're, you're using sort of the primary production less efficiently, if you will, right? Because you've got, and anyway, that, but that's kind of, eco, eco, you know, ecology speak. But where, where I think the, and so you could make an argument that um, 
that, that you could feed a very large population eating vegetable matter on a much smaller land area than, than we currently use. And I think that's true just from the, the, the energetics, you know, the, the, the ecology of it. That being said, I think where the, some of the nuance comes in is, uh, you know, is, is some of that, uh, yeah, the nutritional aspects that, that Ernie mentioned, but also what I would say is, you know, we have large areas of land that is suited to be in grasslands and should remain that way. Uh, if we're going to utilize those as part of a food production system, you know, we don't, it's, it's not beneficial to sort of plow up the grasslands and, and, and put in, you know, wheat that doesn't produce very much. We did that here in the 30s, you know, in eastern Colorado. We now have the Pawnee National Grasslands, which was partly because of that. They went back in and put permanent grasses in because, you know, it's too dry in some places to, you know, to, to grow as much wheat as they were trying to grow back in the day. So if you're going to use those systems, humans can't eat grass uh, or not at least grass leaves, but, but animals can. So that is a, a way to, you know, to utilize that energy as part of the, you know, the, the food production system. Uh, so I think there is, and, and, and as, you know, th th there are integrated crop livestock systems properly managed can be among the most effective at building up and maintaining large carbon stocks in soil. So I think there's a, there's a role for livestock production. Uh, I think the debate is more, you know, how, how big a, you know, how big a sector should we have globally? Uh, and that's, that's where I think the argument is, is really at. Really quickly, and let Ernie uh, jump in. I uh, this is a big topic, so could talk a lot about it. In fact, but I, I would say that they, some of the best land managers are these that are doing the sustainable livestock and grazing and rotation and and integrating it. Um, you know, having a diversified operation, and so by giving that kind of message, you're basically you know punishing them <laughs> in many ways. Um, eat meat or don't meat wheat. So we, I, I, from our view, we need to expand those types of practices and expand that market. Um, and so the, f you know, I, I, that's that's basically they get caught in that kind of damage. And and a lot of those type of producers um, and and entering into that market are young, uh, young farmers and ranchers. It's a easy. It's a night. I don't want to say easy, but it's a it's a way to get into agriculture that doesn't require quite as much upfront cost as some of the larger scale commodity production. So it's a, you know, you kind of cut, they're kind of getting cut off at the knees when they're actually, uh, I think by most uh, assessments would be doing the right thing for the land and the climate. Do you want to jump in, Ernie? I think they've covered it. Thank you. 
So um, Mo was asking, um, as a reporter covering water issues, um, what should she keep her eye on from an agricultural perspective? So that's a, that's a great question. Thank you for it. It really is a great example of how well-managed agricultural ranching landscapes are delivering multiple solutions, one of which is water storage. So oftentimes when we hear and, and read about water storage, it's about who's extracting it and who's getting it. It's very often overlooked of who's managing the resource base that's actually capturing and storing it and holding it. So we've got a great uh, example right here in Colorado with one of my board members, Pat O'Toole, uh, who's in the western part of the state, who's been managing a very large landscape of private and public land, trying to uh, deploy uh, conservation practices and production systems that are producing high-value ecosystem services that support a fishery, that support water storage, that support habitat for sagebrush and other endangered species, and support sustainable grazing of his uh, sheep and cattle. So um, we, we sometimes forget that where water falls and accumulates is a reservoir that needs to be protected. And I would urge us to be thinking about these landscapes as delivering that solution that's also a climate smart solution. Because in a drier, uh, hotter environment, water is going to be more precious. Uh, there's going to be greater demand for it. We have to certainly use it more efficiently, but we have to store it and manage it. And these agricultural landscapes are, are the place to do that. Um, so, um, the question is, is there a, um, a risk of a um, backlash um, because of this, um, all of this dietary advice to consume less meat? And what is the cattle industry, what can they do or it do to um, encourage more uh, sort of sustainable practices. No. no. no what can they do to educate their own members uh, okay. so that they understand that greenhouse gases should be the first target? In other words, it's, it's in their best interest to be educated on climate change and, and advocate for a reduction of fossil fuels so that, so that people don't look for simple answers like dousing their meat. Does that make sense? I think so. So what, what, what does the cattle industry do to um, 
uh, educate its own members about the role of meat production in yeah. Just real quickly, I would say, you know, I would say it would be great if the cattle industry, uh, livestock industry did, um, you know, did take a little bit more of a proactive stance, perhaps in, in the sense of saying, yeah, it's an issue and we need to, uh, you know, but there are also solutions out there and maybe we want to be part of them. I, I was just going to mention there's, you know, there's some real interesting research that, um, that, uh, you know, the kind of rotational grazing systems, which are not really necessarily uh, common practice, can uh, increase productivity and improve soils. Uh, but there's there's a need for a lot more uh, research there to really, because they're, they're kind of tricky systems to, to study. They're, they're much more difficult than annual crop systems. There is now, you know, there's a large project that we're involved with with another, uh, several other universities that's being funded partly by the, uh, the Farm Foundation for Agricultural Research, but also McDonald's is putting some money into it to look at, you know, these kinds of adaptive multi-paddock grazing systems and what do they really do? Do they increase soil carbon? Do they reduce overall greenhouse gases because you also have better quality forage, higher digestibility, you get less enteric emissions, you know, these kinds of things. So I think the grazing land area is an area that I think would benefit a lot from, you know, more scientific research to understand these more complex uh, issues and could then provide a better kind of science-based uh, information about, you know, where these systems fall in, uh, in terms of their environmental impacts. So I can speak to this from a global perspective and, and a national perspective. It's become a cottage industry to beat up on the beef producers. And if you believe half of what's written, you could easily walk away with the mental image of a cow emitting emissions like a 1960s a vehicle running on leaded gasoline. It's just a, it's a mobile toxic time bomb. The reality is the beef industry, the dairy industry, has been continuously improving how they raise animals, the efficiency of production. The greenhouse gas emissions have been coming down. And there is a lot of work that they do with their own members that most people aren't even aware of because you're not a cattle producer. So I would urge anybody that wants to do some deep research to take a look at the programming that's been put into place in the dairy industry, in the beef industry, to help educate their own members and to document the improvements in greenhouse gas emissions and land use efficiency over time. Um, and by way of leadership, um, of all of the work that we're doing around the country right now, the most progressive farmer leaders at the state level are leading our program in Florida. Florida leaders have come together and are working on a mid-century action plan to transform how agriculture operates in the state of Florida because they've concluded it's not sustainable. The entire initiative is about transforming how the land is managed, what is grown, how it's grown, and it's led by two cattle producers who are outstanding examples of conservation farmers who are adopting agroforestry systems that are sinking carbon, filtering water, improving fisheries, creating an economically viable industry in a part of the state that's economically depressed. So that's a story I hope you would write about, that here's cattle 
uh, men and women leading an environmental reform in a very conservative state, uh, and it's hardly even on the radar screen. But yet it's very easy to pick up almost any publication and read the Eat Lancet report about how your next bite of hamburger is going to result in cardiac arrest and death or destruction of the Amazon or whatever it is. Yes, animals contribute problems, but don't lose sight of the fact that they deliver multiple solutions from the land. Both sides, I feel like that you know there, there gets to be there's the soundbite of oh we're trying to take away your hamburgers, that, that's that's not that's not what these reports are saying either. So I think um, the, the the hyperbole um, falls on on both sides. So, yeah. Can um, I just jump in real? Just yeah, add one yeah, little sure. new curveball to that whole thing. You know, it's interesting if you look at um, the big uh, beef pack beef packing companies and. Uh, Tyson or Cargill or JBS, they're investing a lot in these alternative meats. Um, so they're positioning themselves to, you know, I think that's there are climate considerations and health considerations in doing that. So there's a, uh, I would draw the distinction between the companies, and these are global companies, and uh, ranchers themselves. Many times their interests are crossed and together very closely, but sometimes they're not. And uh, so I think getting out front on this, it, it really would serve livestock producers, and they are in many cases. And there's also some fairly big divisions, which I'm sure you're aware of, within uh, the cattle producer uh, uh, sort of country right now between who represents, who's really representing them and who's not. So that's, there's a lot of other layers to that, to that discussion. But I, I think drawing distinction between the companies and the, and the ranchers, it's important to recognize there's different interests. Right, and, the, and a lot of the ranchers are very small scale, you know, they don't, right. th these aren't big operators, a lot of them. Um, we'll take one more question. Um, sorry, I've kind of ignored this side of the room and we're going over time, I apologize, but may maybe just one more. Uh, Bryce Gray with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Um, based mostly on my backyard interaction with Monsanto and Daniel Bayer, uh, you know, they always put on a very optimistic face and tout themselves as uh, a part of climate solutions going forward as opposed to dwelling on the challenges. I guess my question is sort of twofold. Um, you know, one, do you buy that, uh, you know, that um, large-scale commercial agriculture can be more of a, a solution than a challenge going forward? And then if so, if industry can uh, become part of a solution, is there like a single biggest strategy that's going to get them there, whether it's driving efficiency through the roof Um, so the question was, do you buy, and I think I know Ernie's answer to this, do you buy that um, industrial large-scale operators can be part of the solution? Um, that was the first part. And second part is... And if they can be part of the solution, what is the single biggest strategy for getting them there? So we're out of time here, I think, but the short answer is absolutely, yes. Uh, they're not going to do it all, and we need all forms of agriculture. So if you're thinking of large monoculture, industrial 
corn soybean production as an example, there's a lot that can be done with technology, precision application of nutrients, cover crops, um, no tillage operations, and the tools that the life science companies bring to allow those landscapes to sequester uh, significant amounts of carbon. And one thing that we're, we're surprised to learn about recently is the amount of deep soil sequestration that's occurring on monoculture no-till corn in the Dakotas. If you look at David Clay's work at the University of South Dakota, where they're actually going down two meters into the soil profile to examine and document soil carbon sequestration, they're finding uh, carbon uh, deposits that exceeded their expectations. So previously, we've been measuring in the top, Keith, you know this better than me, what is it, the top meter? And they've never done a lot of deep uh, analysis work. So yes, they can deliver solutions. And I think soil carbon sequestration would be one example of low-hanging fruit. Um, just real quickly, recognizing um, I, there's no way to avoid um, <laughs> working with large landowners. I mean, I, and large producers, they have to be part of the solution and going to have to work with them. I think that the challenge with a company like Monsanto Bayer, you know, their whole model um, is really monoculture, um, really um, maybe doesn't get us to where we need to get to. And so they're going to have to really think as a company, uh, and I would argue they probably are going to have to be made to think as a company through some kind of uh, probably policy framework to shift their model a little bit and think about diversification and think about soil health as a, as a, uh, as a goal in terms of what they're trying to do. I mean, I, you know, that's a company that's pushing Decomba out there right now, which is causing an enormous amount of damage. So it's, you know, they're going to have to reconcile, I think, a little bit of their entire business model. Um, and I think there are different strands within, you know, these companies are huge. There's different strands within those companies pushing for different things. Um, so I would argue they probably need a policy framework to say this is what the rules are going to be. And they'll do fine. They'll figure it out, you know. Just uh, thanks to you for uh, for organizing this, and, and thanks sure. to you all for coming and having a nice conversation. Yeah, sorry yeah. we're making you uh, late for lunch. My fault. And um, thanks so much to all of you guys. Thank you. <clears throat>